All right. Well, we are back for another Country Drive, and we would like to welcome our guest that we're honored to have today, Mr. Keith Stegall. Howdy. It's uh, one of those moments in my life where I get to speak to a true Renaissance man. Oh, goodness. I appreciate the compliment. I'm going to start off by asking you, um, most people that are listening probably are already aware of all of your accomplishments, and we're going to get into a lot of those contributions and co- accomplishments later. But mm-hmm. as a once-upon-a-time a once aspiring philosopher— I wanted to uh, read a quote from Plato. Um, Music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. And as I said, you were, once upon a time, an aspiring philosopher. So what is music to you? Uh, Music is the soundtrack to life. Uh, I I don't know. There's, There's so much magic that's in it, you know. Uh, that you can't explain uh, when you, and it doesn't have to be lyrical. It could be just music. And, you know, if you listen to Beethoven, uh, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll feel. And it, it, it really is uh, a cosmic language. I wanted to ask you about uh, Dreamlined Entertainment. If you just want to talk about some of the artists well, and what you guys have going yeah, on over we, there. It's, it's just, it's another extension of, 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 me, I guess, you know, but uh, uh, we develop writer artists and try to get them record deals and and just play the, play the Nashville game. So, yes, uh, but we, it's it's important to uh, develop, help people get to that next place creatively, not just not just success wise, but if you if you if you take care of the creative. The creative side, it'll take care of you, you know, so. I, I'm really a big fan of a lot of the artists that you have over there. I think it's amazing that they have the opportunity to have you kind of helping them to draw a roadmap. Uh, I was listening to Caleb and Leanne. Yeah. They have, oh, beautiful yeah. harmonies. Yeah. An amazing a bunch of singers and and uh, and musicians, too. So, yeah, great, great bunch of people, their the, whole family. One of their songs— um, the good, the bad, and the in between. Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful song, and they have a wonderful cover of Jolene out there. Yeah, I saw that. Actually, I didn't do that, but I saw it. Uh, it popped up on either my Instagram or one of my feeds. Yes, sir. And then um, Michaela Lynn, the Hay Goods. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the Hay Goods are interesting too. Yeah, because it's a. Uh, uh, I went to see them in in Branson. They're the, they're they are actually from Branson. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people, when their career is over, go to Branson. Yes, They're sir. trying to get out of Branson. <laughs> they were born there, but just incredibly talented people, and, and are, are probably the biggest show in in Branson. So uh, it really, without really seriously dating myself, it, it reminds you a bit of the Osmond mm-hmm. family. You know, mm-hmm. there's that type of uh, connection between each one of them. So uh, that's going to be a fun fun project. Yeah, they have a good cover of Shenandoah out there, and I, I enjoyed listening to that. They're amazing. As a as the son of a musician, what does it mean to you to have your daughter writing for you? Oh, it's 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 the third generation, you know. Uh, she is my oldest. I've got three daughters, and the other two are smart enough not to not to walk into the fire. Uh, but it's it's been incredibly uh, rewarding to watch my daughter grow and 
learn how to become a writer and a record producer. So she grew up in that in that environment. So it's it's very comfortable to her. Does uh, does she write with dad or does she? Uh, say- we have a couple of times. It's always you know that's I'm not I'm not sure about uh, it. It works, but I'm not sure that it's it's easy. You know because we're both. We're both made up of the same genes, so it's a little bit – it's a different deal, but it's 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 fun when it happens and it works, you know. I think it made good reality TV to see a daughter and dad writing together yeah. and buttheads sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was actually with a producer the other day named Mike Shimshak, and he was raving about her writing. Yes. Where have I met Mike from? I have met him. He's a producer here in town. I'm working yeah. with him yeah, on yeah, a project. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, sir. So I did want you to know that there's people out there just very complimentary keep, of her work. It makes me feel so proud when it comes back to me from unsolicited. You know, yeah. your daughter's really good, Keith. You know, Do you know that? No one. Yeah, yeah. You know, That's but good. she's just been – she's has had the uh, freedom to to learn and run and fly and do all those things. Um. Looking back on your career, I think one of the pivotal moments for you, you know, just from reading up, uh, is when you met Chris Christofferson. And I'd like to give people a little bit of a feel for how you ended up in Nashville and how you became the Keith Stagall. So what was that moment like? Uh, it was uh, pretty surreal. I'm not even sure whether Chris is even aware of it. I mentioned it to him at, you know, 25 years ago at the premiere of a movie called Songwriter, and I talked to him. But it was it was a uh, how do I, I'm trying to look for the right adjective, but it 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 was grounding because here's the guy, this is the writer, the quintessential writer that I've studied and 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 marveled at, at his use of words. Uh, and any any time I run into a new writer, I always go go study Christofferson's lyrics because they're efficient. There's not a bunch except in Bobby McGee, which is a different animal. But for the good times, study each line and have the word efficiency that's going on. So, but having his attention, which was overwhelming and intimidating, but he was he was so easygoing, and uh, he had his entourage with him. Billy Swan was there. I think Chris Gantry was there. The people that were in his band. We're in that room with me. And there is actually a cassette that exists somewhere. There was a guy, a local radio station guy, who had a cassette going that was recording this whole this whole thing. But uh it 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 flipped the light on for me. Go yes, to sir. Nashville. Go to Nashville. And that was that's what I did. You know, I heard a songwriter one time <clears throat> give a quote about Keith, I mean Chris, and I cannot remember it verbatim, but it was hilarious to me. He said, I, that guy has erased better lines than I've ever written. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) But, you know, he is, he is a very humbling songwriter when you're trying to write songs and you listen to his and you're like, oh, but it's also someone that raises the bar. Yeah. And it it was, you know, I mean, Chris is a good interpreter. He's not, he's not like this incredible singer, but that was, that's the first time I brushed up against Somebody who wasn't this incredible singer, but was the writer. Mm-hmm. And the way that they sang the words is different than a than just a singer. You know, they it's, it's theirs. It's their story and it it hits you like a like a sledgehammer. So 
what, one of the thing, reasons we call this Country Drive is learning from very successful people when, whenever we have the chance to speak to them about the drive to make it. And might be a random question, but did you find your talent and that inspired your drive? Or do you feel like you were always driven towards success or driven to find a talent? I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I was, I started actually playing piano when I was four. Mm-hmm. And music, as it got, as I got better and got more skilled, I never, I never considered making a living at the, at the music business. You know, it was such a big piece of my life. It was the big piece of my relationship with my father. Uh, and I just didn't think it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about monetizing it. I just thought I was just so on fire for the music. And, uh, and you know, I remember at five and six writing lyrics down and making up these, these songs, even at that, at that age, but never, never thought, oh, I could do this and make a living. And that obviously grew as I got older. So when you get here, you immediately become a songwriter. You have a lot of hits. Um, but you also became an artist. Yeah. What was it like as an artist in the 80s? Well, uh, <laughs> it was great if you if you work with the right people. Yes, sir. Uh, and there are so many different ways to carve that in Nashville. You have people that – everybody's got their own way that they like to work and. Uh, my biggest issue was that I wanted to be part of the musician entourage. I wanted to be one of those guys. Awesome. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in control. And my producer at the time was Kyle Lenning, and I know I drove him crazy because he, I, I wouldn't give him the reins. I had to be up in it, you know. And I realized that's what a record producer does, and. That's when I began to make that transition because I wanted to be I wanted to shoot the <laughs> with the, with the musicians yes, and, and and talk to the engineer and there was a there was a real propensity in Nashville at that time look you're the artist stay in this lane mm-hmm. we got this you stay in that lane I go well, well, wait a minute you know we listen to a playback or a take and they go, we got it. I'd go, no, no, you don't, you don't have it yet. <laughs> you know, so I was, I was constantly driving people crazy that were in my circle. Well, I've read a lot about you that you had the producer hat on from a very young age, and I think, just based on my study of the genre, that the Nashville sound era that was very much the thing. Chet and those guys uh, had the yep. ra- had the reins on it. Yeah, the outlaw era had kind of squashed yep. some of that, and they were trying to get it back probably in the eighties. <laughs> uh, ben. If you will, we have a video on there we want to show Keith. It should say Keith on YouTube. Uh, no. Keep. Oh. oh, no. Here we have Mr. <laughs> Stagall on Hee Haw. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, I saw a thing on The Wire one time, a show I like a lot, and they were asking him about how they buy the caps with the bill on the side. 
Yeah. And the guy just said, no, no, you should buy a regular cap. You should put it on the side. <laughs> so what I want to ask you about your suit here is how do you find the uh, short sleeve suits? <laughs> this is another issue that I always had had with Nashville. And, and it uh, it was the the manufacturing side yes, of sir. everything. Yes, sir. You know. And I think that's that's was that piece of my belief system is what resonated with Alan Jackson. Yes, sir. Because we were both like, we don't we don't want to be dressed up. This is what we are. Let's be who we are. But at that particular time, you know, there was a stylist and there was all that stuff. And I know it's important, but it it and plus, I had you know was influenced a lot by Crosby, Stills and Nash, and mm-hmm. Dan Vogelberg, and that whole scene, which people were in flannel shirts and moccasins, and it was like, that's cool. Yes, sir. But by the time I got to Nashville, it was told you got to play this way, or if you don't play this way, so hence, <laughs> that hence would... the shirt that or the the purple shirt with squares <laughs> on it, which God knows where that shirt is. It's probably stuck in a Goodwill bin somewhere. That was coming off of the urban cowboy movement, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. fashion was a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just was always hard to dress. <laughs> um, so then in 86, you're dealing with being an artist and you help create one of the greatest rocket ships launching, launching one of the greatest rocket ships in country music history, Randy Travis. What was that like? Well, it was... Uh, Phenomenal. Again, I was just dabbling in production, and I actually uh, had an office that I that was in is in the house that Randy and Liv lived in. So I was that's where I got to know both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew, you know, from the first time that I heard Randy sing, uh, this I, there was that. X factor, you know that there there's just certain people that have that. I've been so fortunate. The artists that I've worked with, the have have had that, you know, and it's yes, like it's like a bell rang. But uh, so I helped get him the first record deal on Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an artist at the time. Kyle Winning was producing me, and I made the decision. I I told Kyle, I said, look. I think Randy's incredible. He's going to make it. I said, but I, I'm, I'm out on the road, and I said I can't be a full time producer to him, and he deserves that. So that's I kind of backed out of the equation after I think we did the first three or four things. On the other hand, was one of those, but that's that's the way that marriage kind of started, and then and then Kyle, of course, took it and and took it up to to the next level. Mean, meanwhile, I've walked away from that, and I'm out on the road in a broken down bus, going, "What in, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing with your career?" Uh, but that was that was one of those changes that happened. That was just being in the bleachers to watch it was amazing. Well, I'm glad that you point out. Um you know, being in a broken down bus. I think that a lot of people like me growing up and looking up to you guys was thinking this is the most glorious thing in the world, but it's a struggle for, for artists oh, out on the road. Yeah, yeah, it is. And do you think that, you know, you're you're working with Randy and you're about to really start working with a lot of other people. Do you think that that helped you to kind of 
have an affinity for what they go through out on the road and what they are as artists? Well, I think my the heart of the the way that I produce records is from an art an artist standpoint mm-hmm. because I was uh, so I wanted I, for which I I could never find it for myself, but I thought you know if if I could be if I could be inside that artist's brain enough to know what they're feeling outside on the floor through the glass i can i can relate you yes, know sir. and if i can make them realize i can relate then we're going to create some magic so that's kind of the that's and, and jackson has said many times well i like he cuz he's an artist you know <laughs> so that was kind of uh a big piece of that relationship mm-hmm. but it 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 gave me a different perspective because I was musical and I was an artist and I was a writer, so it 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 gave me some tools that that helped me in the production side. So we're passing eighty six, and you've you've helped launch Randy, and I just want to shine a little light back on you as a songwriter because you're one of the best ever. In eighty nine, Keith Whitley releases a song with uh, an album with one of your songs on it. Yeah, between an old memory and me. Yeah. Uh, that's still to this day. Uh, it, it makes me emotional when I when I think about it because it was. I actually talked to him uh, Sunday before he passed, and uh, he was. He said, "I want to come by. I got to play you. I got to play your song, man. You know." And of course, that never that never happened. But uh, actually, Travis Tritt also had yes, hit that song. But that the- song is is. What's amazing to me, have thank God I've lived long enough to see it, but is, you know, I've got a couple of songs like that that keep showing up that people are doing. You go to YouTube and there's, you know, there's 500 versions of somebody singing between an old memory and me. But that was and still remains uh, one of my uh, favorite records yeah travis on the 10 feet tall and bulletproof album he kind of turned it into more he of a, power, a yeah, power ballad yeah, yeah. but i mean it's i think for me as a fan looking back listening to that song now you know i listen to that and i listen to you know his recording of tell Lori i love her yeah and you just you can just feel his loneliness yeah yeah but that's why i think those kind of songs register with him because he was going through a lot of things yeah, the, the the week after he passed, Gar, I was over at actually at Sound Emporium working, and I bumped into Garth Fundus, and he he said, "Have you heard the record yet?" And I went, "No, nobody's played it for me." He goes, "Well, come in here," and he took me into the studio and played the played the finished mix for me, and it was I just was gobsmacked. Yeah, you know, it was powerful. Yeah, to think about him being lonely when he passed away, it just. Yeah. That, that opening line, I was sitting at a table in a little club downtown. Um, well, I appreciate you writing that song because I love it. Oh, thank you. And so I do want to make sure we point out some of those great songs that you've written through the years. Uh, moving on to, ni- uh, again, in 1989, along with Keith releasing that song, you were about to uh, embark on an endeavor that lasts until today. Yeah. One of the things I love about Alan Jackson compared to a lot of other artists is he's been loyal to you and you've yeah. been loyal to him this whole time. Uh, produced every album with him, correct? Except the Allison Krauss record. The Bluegrass uh, album. Uh, well, it was supposed to be a Bluegrass album, but it turned. It was, uh, I'm trying to think, the track was like Red on a Rose, I think was, mm-hmm. the, was the track, but it wasn't a Bluegrass album. Yes, it was sir. more of a uh, alt 
Americana record. Well, I know we have a lot of people that have a great affinity and love for Alan. So, but I want to ask you: before the world knew who Alan Jackson was, what was Keith DeGaulle's first impressions of those early days of working with him? Before he'd even released the uh, "Here in the Real World," you know, he is no different, except that he's famous now and wealthy. But uh, there was just a genuineness about him that was not overpowering. It was very subtle. And I just I just knew he was special. Again, it's that the X Factor thing shows up. And, and uh, I remember going on uh, to a truck stop bar, and this would have been 1987, 88, on uh, New Year's Eve. He, he was playing this truck stop bar. And uh, actually over right where the Titan Stadium is now. Anyway, I went in there and there was, you know, we went in for to see him because it was Christmas or it was New Year's Eve. So walked in and there's like five people in there, you know, and there he's playing, you know, some Merle Haggard covers. And and so we stayed about an hour, hour and a half and I left. And as I was leaving, there was four, four people, two couples were coming in. And they said, Who, who's in there playing? And I said, Alan Jackson. And they looked at each other and said, we never heard of him. Let's go somewhere else. So they turned around and walked. We're walking off. And I said, this time next year, you're going to pay $50 a ticket. <laughs> and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I wow. was right. <laughs> well, uh, how did it feel for you to be a co-writer on his debut song? Well, I mean, I, it, it was not... A mission I was on. This this kind of just popped up because Alan loved that song, you know. And 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 then I got really worried when we stalled out. I think in the forties or the fifties with that. And and I'm you know my typical paranoia, which has always served me well, is like you're going to get fired because I think you're pushing your song and it failed, you know. So but but Alan was just so so cool about it. He goes, hey man, it just didn't work. He's going, we're going to release another single. And the, the second single was picked by Clive Davis, mm -hmm. who was running Arista from New York. And uh, Tim Dubois was running Arista in, in Nashville. And, and Tim actually solicited Clive, what do you think next single ought to be? Clive said, here in the real world. And and then that one was a rocket ship for sure. Well, Blue But a Woman, I do want to compliment it because it's a great song. It has a similar storyline to a song that had just been released by Travis Tritt, Country Club, you know, yeah, kind of the yeah. cross the tracks guy and, and the girl. I do remember we we recorded a we shot a video for it over, oh, yeah. over at the Parthenon. We have it up there. And I'll tell you know. a funny story about that is is they had these chairs all set up in that chamber orchestra playing up on the steps of the Parthenon, and the pigeons, the pigeons started roosting above their <laughs> above their heads while they're trying to shoot this video, and the pigeons start dropping <laughs> dropping bombs on them. <laughs> That's the video. No, you had the video up. Yeah. So the pigeons dropped bombs on Alan. No, on the on the crowd that oh. was watching was watching him and the chamber orchestra up on the steps. But yeah, the pigeons were you know what they were doing. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned Clive because uh, it's kind of an important story. I've heard you speak a lot about synchronicity. 
So Alan is here. He's been turned down by a lot of labels. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he's been quoted saying that a woman at CBS told him to go back to Georgia. (laughs) I I mean, can you imagine being that woman nowadays? I know who she is, but I'm not going (laughs) to. But with the synchronicity and the stars aligning in your favor, somewhere in New York, Clive Davis is deciding, I'm going to go to Nashville. And he contacts a lawyer in Atlanta named Joel Katz, says, Mm -hmm. put together a list of names. On that list of names is Mm -hmm. Tim Dubois. And somewhere in the midst of all of that uh, structuring, Clive is, I guess, in a headspace where he decides, I don't want people in Nashville to think I'm trying to change the game down there. So I need to prove myself as someone who's going to have a country music label. And all of that sets up to have Alan Jackson as the best available artist, I'm assuming, at that time. I don't know the other guys that were chasing it. Yeah, flagship artist. Yeah. So I'm just, I just think it's interesting for people to know that, you know, you can be walking around this town, you can be getting told no, and then there's things that can be happening in the universe. Let me tell you something. The, the most spectacular things that have happened to me or the things that happened to me on their own with no explanation. I'm not saying you shouldn't try and mm-hmm. you shouldn't, you shouldn't give it everything, but there's just some things that are of large, massive magnitude you didn't make happen. Mm-hmm. They just came around and caught you up in it, and that's that's the way I felt about the whole the whole Allen experience for me was things just good things kept happening, and and I was amazed because he would ebb and flow. He would he would he would knock one out of the park like here in the real world, and things would kind of go down. But after every three years or four years, he'd pop another one up, mm-hmm. and it would you know Chattahoochee came along and it was like blew it up again. Uh, five o'clock somewhere came along, blew it up again. So he just had, he, and I always told him, I said, "Man, your instincts are so good. Don't ever question your instincts." And he he's you know he's he's been on point. He's been right. I'd like to ask you also, as a producer, uh, I don't know if people kind of talk about it nowadays, but there used to be something called the sophomore jinx. Oh, the second album? Yeah. yeah. And you guys had no problem with that because <laughs> he went to a whole different level, and you and Roger and Alan write, don't rock the jukebox, and you're just the trajectory. Yeah, that's uh, that's the power of the song, though. and And he always... He kept that box with him that I always talk about, and uh, it was just a cardboard box that had a stack of cassettes in it. And, and every record that we would do, we would do half and half, and a lot. And the town doesn't really; they, the town still thinks that he wrote everything on every. He didn't. It was it was split usually fifty fifty, mm-hmm. except for the first record, I think. But uh, he had that box. And he would go. Well, here's what some I've written. Here's some I've written. We'd go. We'd go record them, uh, and then he'd get to the end of that box and start finding, you know, outside writer songs. And then we'd finish out the sessions with those outside writer songs. So, uh, but he's, you know, he, he knows a hit song. There's a lot of artists that don't know a hit song. They just get yes, they, they do what they're told to do. You know, and I was, uh, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. One of the things you set up for all the success of country music in the 90s, and I do consider you one of the people who helped lay that foundation, were some really interesting projects like uh, 
to reference back to your enjoying wearing flannels, the Eagles were broken up. Mm-hmm. And then you guys all got together, collaborated with a lot of producers and artists, and released the Common Thread album. Yeah. Which, for a, for a compilation album, I don't know how typical it is to go triple platinum. Oh, it's it was... I, I didn't think... It, I couldn't believe it when it happened. Uh, and I think we actually won a CMA award. Yes, sir. I yeah, believe so. We did, yeah. Um, but I wonder what, what you thought about that album and and how... So many people were coming to country music in the 90s. I think you had something that happened in the 80s with glam metal going into alternative by the early 90s to where some classic rock fans were a little alienated and needed a home. And you guys kind of provided it uh, by tapping into that classic rock feel and helping to attract more people to the genre. Yeah. I uh, Also, I think the track we did was Tequila Sunrise was what we did. Uh, Talk about a perfect vocalist for that song. Yeah, and it it, it fit him stylistically pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, and I have to give James Stroud credit. I think he kind of spearheaded that whole, the making of that record. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was special. So, Alan's growth is one of the most magnificent things to me as a writer, as an artist. And we were just a couple of which I think just over a month from the 9-11 anniversary. Mm-hmm. And we're just a few weeks away from what would become one of the most pivotal moments in Alan's career and possibly your career and yeah. country music as a whole, where Alan became the voice of healing for an entire nation. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an important moment. Um, and I just want to get your thoughts and feelings about this song and what it meant to you to be a part of this important moment. Uh I think uh, the most important piece to me was being on his bus, and I think we were we were in the middle of tracking. I want to say the Drive record, maybe I, I can't remember. But he said, "I wrote this uh, song, and I, I don't know whether we should look at it or not." He goes, "I'm afraid people will think." I'm trying to capitalize on what's just happened to us, you know, to the country. I said, well, at least play it for me so I can he, – he pulled out his crumpled pieces of paper that he had jotted this down on, and he played Where Were You, and from top to bottom, just he and the guitar. And he said, what do, what do you think? What are we going to do? So we have to, you have to release this because this is going to help people. And I said, don't, I said, you don't need to be fearful that somebody will think that you're taking advantage of anything. You're just helping the country heal. Uh, And at that present moment, he had a song that was going up the charts called It's All Right to Be a Redneck. Mm -hmm. And it was written by a couple of good friends of mine, actually. But... Uh, when we walked back in, we got, we got, I said, let's get Brent out here, Brent Mason, to just get the chart put together. So we went back in to the tracking room, I think is what we were using uh, over there back behind Shoney's. And uh, we tracked it. And it, again, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> I, I can't. I keep. I'm stretching for words here, but it, it's just impossible to to recreate 
the gravity of that moment. And when he when we finished it, finished tracking, I said, We have to call we have to call Joe Galante. Alan, he's gotta hear this. Yes, sir. So I called Joe and I said, Can you get can you get a couple of your people and get over here to the to the tracking room? I want you to hear something we just recorded on Alan. And he did, and of course the machine went went into full full throttle at that point and they the single that was out there was you know it it was stopped being promoted and they've started preparing for uh where were you what's kind of amazing about where were you is it's very much in the lexicon of of american society today now with if i was to meet you in a coffee shop and we just got to talk and that would be and we talked about 9-11 i would look at you and go where were you and you would ask me the same the idea that he has the voice of each and every human being in him yeah. is something that's always amazed me about songwriters where he didn't decide what the question would be, but he kind of created the question that, again, is very much in the lexicon of American society even today. Yeah. I think, I think as a writer, he, his, his process is, is honesty, real, and fun. Yes, sir. I love with Alan that when I was like 12 years old or 13, he was giving me Chattahoochee and don't rock the jukebox. And But then today, and, you know, to call attention to another song you wrote, Things That Matter. Yeah. Uh, I guess he chose that song as one that you had written. He chose The Older I Get. Yeah. He wrote songs like Remember When. And it's just fascinating to me to see a guy that grows. I think the thing with Alan for me as a fan is that 10-year arc. Man, he got to 2001, and he just went to a different stratosphere. Yeah. He, he remarkably has, keeps, has done that and has continued to do that. Uh, and I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I, I got to ride in the, in the passenger seat through this whole, this whole thing. I was wondering if that's inspiring to you as an artist and a producer to see the, uh, someone you work with just keeps coming with it. That drive is there to, to deliver something meaningful and with depth. Yeah, and it it again like I uh, repeating what I said earlier about things of great magnitude happen on their own. I think you know the the machine was helping him the promotion side, the marketing side, but I'm going to tell you something. He connected with people on a level that no promoting in the world could have turned it into what it did, you know. It's just because of who he is and and the, his connection with his fans just drove, it just kept blowing it up. I don't want you to throw anything at me, but do you have a favorite Alan Jackson album? <laughs> uh, I question whether I should ask that. You know what? You're going to laugh at me, but uh, the second Christmas album we did. Really? And we used the Toronto Symphony. Uh, and it's it's all recorded in the style of Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby, that type of record. And we just had so much fun making it. Uh, and it's still, the record still just blows me away. Not for anything that I did, but just hearing in this massive string arrangements and these background voices and choirs and stuff. And it was just, it's just a beautiful record. Uh, you mentioned Toronto. You did the strings for Where Were You in Toronto, right? Yes, Matthew McCauley, uh, uh, arranged them. Actually, I just sent them up there to him. He had he had done 
two or three other Jackson tracks before, and I I just I called him and I said, we have to have this. This is like a week before uh, the CMAs. Mm-hmm. And I said, Matt, we got to get you – how quickly can you turn this around? And I said, how quickly can you get them to me? So I did, and we received the manuscript the day – of the CMA Awards, so it made the it made it in time for the first for that rehearsal that day, which was like twelve o'clock, eleven o'clock rehearsal out at the Opry House, and I I chose Matt because his sense of arrangements is very reminiscent of Stephen Foster. Mm-hmm. It's got that southern fabric in it, you know, and, and he, he just does it naturally. So everything that he does has that, has that flavor to it. Well, it's actually symbolic and important that you did the strings in Canada. I don't know if you were thinking about this, obviously, because I think you use Canada for your strings, apparently, for the Christmas album, but they actually played an important role in 9-11 in uh, Gander, Newfoundland. Yeah. Have you ever heard that story? Yes. Really fascinating. Yeah. What those people did taking in it almost doubled their population. So yeah. for me, as a 9-11 junkie who's researched all the things that happened that day, I'm really fascinated by the idea that you went to um, Canada so they could have a part in the song. <laughs> I know, again, that's probably not why you did it, but it's really fascinating. And I did think that if I asked you Alan's favorite album, I should have one ready, and I have to say Everything I Love. Ah, that was a good record. From, from beginning to end. That's a terrific record. So we've done so many records that it's. I have to honestly be looking at the album credits to remember all the songs on an album. You know, it's uh, except for the first two because that's before you know things were just beginning to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then after that, it uh, by the time we got to a lot about living, uh, it was it was a beast. I always like to bring up these uh, content creators in country music. Will you pull up that Alan Jackson meme? Because on that album, you have uh, Little Bitty. Yeah. And this guy, Farce the Music, makes these memes. So he's teasing Alan, and it says, for people that are just listening, when you say it's all right to be Little Bitty, but you're 6'4", so you never had to live through all your friends making short jokes <laughs> about you. <laughs> that uh, That song was, that was probably the last... The last thing that Tom T. Yeah. wrote, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had just done a publishing deal with a buddy of mine, Tom Collins. And Tom called me. He goes, hey, Tiger. He goes, I got a, I got you a hit. <laughs> and I said, he goes, Tom T. Hall wrote it. And I went, well, you know, send me a, get me a CD over. And I heard it. I went, he's right. It's a hit. So the day we tracked it at the castle, uh, I had the disc sitting up on the on the producer's side of the console, and Alan was standing there looking at it, and he goes, that little bitty song is a little bitty hit. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right about that, too. Um, I love Alan Jackson's subtleness, but uh, definite sense of humor. <laughs> so, again, you've launched a lot of artists into the stratosphere, but another part of your production that's so impressive is how you've helped to uh, maintain some legacy acts. And there's a guy who, you know, his voice can melt butter, George Jones. How was that producing George? I think maybe 99-ish? Yeah, I think so. Was that the album with Choices? <laughs> yeah. 
it that was a strange experience because when, when I was such a fan up until I worked with him that I couldn't extract myself from the fan worship side of it, you know. So it's and and sometimes you have to be at least critical enough to go. Let's do that again, or let's do you know. And I was I I, I was in a weird place because I thought it all sounded good to me, you know. Even in its rawest, messed up form, it was like this guy. And I I, I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, tracking choices, and the guy that's worked is is right beside me. He's a guy named John Kelton who's who engineers all of my records that I've ever ever, ever produced. But the minute George started singing, he was out on the floor. We had him in a little booth and he was looking back at us. And the minute that voice came through the speakers, I've had choices. Both John and myself, we looked at each other and we we both had these big tears rolling down our face, you know, and that that's again that magic that you just can't you don't know where it comes from, but it's it's from a different world. And it when it when it comes in through to another to the to the receptacle, it's it's powerful, you know. What do you think about when you look at the industry and in we have a moment with related to Alan in '99, where the award show said, "Well, we'll let George play choices, but it's going to be going to commercial break, and we'll just—I I don't know—maybe like a thirty-second snippet of it." Yeah, it was a bumper. We have so many artists that we stop appreciating, or the industry maybe. Yeah, it, it, historically, the the business does. That. How do you feel about when that's going on, and what what's your advice to people to understand that? While you have these artists around, they are still relevant. They are still important. I know yeah. it's a business on radio, but how how would you advise well, I, people to? I think, honestly, country music was – the format had always been very accepting of – for or influencing older people and younger people. It was one of the formats that did that. Not all formats – did that the pop format did you were expendable you know if you got 10 years later you weren't coming back but what has happened to our industry is our industry has gotten more reflective of pop of pop thinking mm-hmm. so and and you you just have to accept it music has always belonged to the young it always has rock and roll belonged to young people well that's that's in country music now. It belongs to the young people, and that's who's driving this business at this point. But that doesn't mean that the the great older artists are still not legitimate and have, have something to say. The platforms are harder and harder to come by to do that, you know. So it's just it's part of the it's part of the system. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been that way, like I said, for years with pop music, but it, now it's 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 unfolding and happening to us, you know. And I think it happened in the R and B world when hip hop came in. The same thing; it swung out of the Marvin Gaye and uh, Teddy Pendergrass, and that whole that whole world was there. But everything hip hop dominated everything else. So it's just just part of part of musical life, you know. I wonder if YouTube and social media has actually helped legacy acts to where you're not seen on CMT, 
you're not seen on heard on the radio, but you still have a connection with your fans through it. I've never really thought about it, but maybe it's a little bit easier to maintain that relationship with your, you know, uh, loyal uh, fan base. Yeah, I I think it is, but it just doesn't, it doesn't receive the attention that a terrestrial radio hit gets, you know, and that's, we haven't gotten rid of terrestrial radio yet. It's still in there uh, pretty, pretty firm, so. Well, in 2004, uh, you wrote a song called I Hate Everything with George Strait. (laughs) And I, I think I told you this earlier, but it's one of those songs where you can hear the title, I Hate Everything, and then by the end, you're just like, that was a great song. And it actually brings me joy to listen to it. I had a bunch of people critical of that just when they saw the title. What do you, you can't, you can't write a song called I Hate Everything. It's got no hope in it. But yeah, but if you see the title, I Hate Everything, and you see Keith Stagall's name next to it, you got to be like, there's something, there's a catch here. And actually that title was, uh, you know, probably... Uh, probably get eggs thrown at me for this, but that title came from me driving home and channel surfing between uh, the three radio stations, the three country radio stations we had in Nashville. Just listen to one after that. And I, I pulled up in my driveway and I went, something is horribly wrong with me. I hate everything. And I, and I stopped and I went, wait a minute, that's a, t- that's a title. <coughs> Excuse me. So <clears throat> ran upstairs and, uh, got an envelope out and jotted down. He was sitting there beside me throwing doubles down. So that first verse just kind of came out. And uh, and I, I realized there was no hope in it, it to the point that I had written it. So I called one of my very good songwriter friends, a guy named Gary Harrison, who's just an exceptionally good lyricist. I said, Gary, I've got about half of this. Will you take it and finish it? And so... He goes, yeah. So that afternoon, I was I was noodling around my studio, and, and I ran into Gary, and he goes, come here, I think I got this. And he was the one that put the, I paid for his drinks, and I told him thanks, thanks for everything. He, Gary was able to put that twist on the end of it. That's terrific. <laughs> um, for people that are listening that are inspired by Keith's career, and you are um, an aspiring writer yourself, never forget, anger can be inspiring. <laughs> What did it mean to you to have a, a cut with George Strait? Oh, it, well, it been everything. I'd, I'd, I'd had a recording on the Right or Wrong album, mm-hmm. but that would that was like his second or third album. So this this was nice to have to have this and and it getting recorded. It it took the path of the old Nashville system because I played it for Irv Woolsey, his his manager. In a bar, we were sitting around having drinks and passing the guitar around. And I, I think I remember at that table, we were at a place. Uh, oh, it was a big club that Herb owned over by Titan Stadium called the Trap. That's mm-hmm. what it was called. But uh, I think Clay Walker was sitting at the table, and Chris Cagle was sitting at the table. It was a bunch of us all having drinks, and everybody's playing them something. And I just just finished I Hate Everything. And so I said, let me see that guitar a second. And Irv is sitting right next beside me, and I, pl- I played it. And when I finished, Irv goes, buddy, he goes, I want to hold on that right now. I went, okay, because <laughs> we're sitting in a bar, and I'm thinking, tomorrow he's not going to remember any of this, but Irv is remarkably uh, has, has a memory like a steel trap. He doesn't forget, no matter how much he's had a drink, he doesn't forget anything. And uh, 
So the next morning he calls me and goes, Buddy's that song still on hold? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, uh, I need to get it to George. And I said, Well, let me put a demo together. And uh, so I I called Brent Mason and Stuart Duncan, all the guys that have played on the Jackson records and, and on Straits records too. I said, I need to get this song demoed really quick. Well, I bring up the George Strait song because um, from that, from 89 or 86 to 2004, you were so pivotal as a writer and as a producer with Randy Travis, Alan Jackson. You had well, uh, Keith Whitley's uh, Between a No Memory and Me. You have George Strait cuts. And, you know, you got your start as an artist and writing for R&B artists, rock artists like Leon, um, Le- Levon, Levon Helm. Yeah. I can't remember the guy from the band's first name. I just got a gold record for that last couple of weeks ago. Well, congratulations. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that song. And Band of Heathens did a good job with that's, it. That's who got the gold record. Oh, okay. Uh, it's amazing recut. But I ask about all of that to say that you've had this lane where you've really fit well with traditional artists the people who are grounded in music. And I wonder how that, wh- where your style developed that way or why that's been something that from, you know, 86 to 2004, how, how you were matching so well and collaborating so well with those types of artists, the guys that have, if you will, saved country music. I think that that is uh, my history growing up with my dad. My dad was a steel guitar player. Uh, so, you know, the first music I was ever hearing was was country music. You know, it was Webb Pierce and Ray Price, Hank Lachlan, uh, just tons of, of of those what which back then were the key figures in country music. Uh, so that's all I heard. That's all I knew. And then by the time in nineteen. I'm going to say around 1964, 1965, the Beatles came along. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I left I left listening to country music once the Beatles once the Beatles happened. But that stuff all came back once I got to Nashville. And I started, I even started meeting the some of the players that played on that stuff that I grew up listening to, you know, so and, and actually became friends with them. So it was remarkable. But that traditional element. Oh, and I think one other key piece of this, I keep going back to to when I'm talking about my history and the the, the guy that introduced my mom and dad to each other was Johnny Horton. Mm-hmm. So those early Johnny Horton records, uh, one woman, man, uh, what, what is it? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Battle here. of New Orleans. Battle, well, he didn't write that. Jimmy Driftwood did, but he but Sink the Bismarck, North to Alaska. Uh, those records were the first things that I listened to, yes, and sir. and uh, and like uh, Honky Tonk Man had that twanging guitar in it, that mm-hmm. twanging telly that was Tommy Tomlinson was playing that. And I thought, man, I like that, you know. So. And then, of course, my relationship with Brent Mason blossomed into him becoming the pivotal musician. Not that the other guys, Paul Franklin, Eddie Bears, Stuart Duncan, these are all incredible people. But that that telly, definitive telly twang became part of the Alan Jackson sound. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate what you've done with the traditional artists because they're just they're such a grounding force 
even yeah, today. Absolutely. I think that they lay out a good idea of what you need. How you know, Murder on Music Row, when Alan and George Strait sing that song. I I know that some people might think it's uh written from a place of, I don't know, resentment, but well, it's tongue in cheek though. Yeah, well, yes, sir. But I'm just saying that uh <clears throat> I find it to be something that you should look at and listen to and say, oh, well, maybe we need to reverse course or <laughs> so. And I have to uh, acknowledge, it's weird how the world works sometimes. I had never heard of the song Battle of New Orleans. And Jim McBride was sitting right here and he was telling me how much he loved that song. And I had to sit there looking dumb going, I have no idea what that song is. And then within a month, I find out your dad was uh, Horton's uh, still, still guitar player. And I'm like, man, this song's just coming at me now. Yeah, if it weren't for Johnny Horton, I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you wow. because uh, he introduced my mom and dad to each other. My grandmother wow. was a Horton, so he was a cousin, and, uh, and and my dad's in his traveling band, you know, and they, they stopped in uh, Gladewater, Texas. Back then, they traveled in a Cadillac with a trailer, and Johnny said, I've, I've got some kinfolks here in Gladewater. I think maybe we can get something to eat and a place to stay tonight. Wow. <laughs> and it was my mom's place. Well, thank God for Johnny Horton, because <laughs> I don't know if it's coming off on camera, but this is one of the greatest moments of my life. <laughs> I did want to tell you that, I don't know if it was related to iTunes, but moving into the late aughts, I was getting very nervous because I love when I can find a great album. And I don't know if iTunes and the singles-driven market had kind of taken it away, but I was wondering, am I going to find a new artist with a great album? And then, boom, here comes Zach Brown <laughs> with one of the greatest albums for, for my taste, and I know music is subjective, but from beginning to end, Sick em on a Chicken, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that the, was one of my favorite tracks on the record. It's one of the few times I can say I can listen to that album over and over and yeah, over. Yeah, me too. Him. Me too. And I got to ask you about <laughs> what it was like discovering uh, Zach and that process. It again, it's it's that <laughs> I keep calling it the X Factor. I know there's a TV show called the same thing, but it's uh, I I believe that Bernie Cahill, who managed Zach for a while, was the, was the one that that uh, gave me a call and said, I need you to, uh, to go to 3rd Lindsley tonight. He goes, there's an artist there that I don't think anybody else is going to get, but you, you need to go see it. And it was the Zach Brown Band. And so I walked in, I took a seat at a table right in front of the stage, and they start playing. And there was something coming off of Zach that was like, Holy mackerel! What there's something powerful here going on, and it's hitting me. And uh, so, uh, one of my partners, who was my business manager, a guy named Alan Cates, I said, "Go talk to Zach. I want to do a record with him. See see what he thinks." And so Zach said, "Let's sit down and talk." So that was that was it. And so between the two of us, we paid for the record out of our pockets. I think I paid twenty thousand dollars to. Wow. And the record set around for 18 months, two years. Couldn't get anybody to bite on it. How is that possible? It just is because it just is. <laughs> it's like I don't want to say anything, get myself in trouble. But it's, you know, I, I, the, one of the most interesting things that Zach told me, he goes, well, I met with this one guy, this one record label. He told me what he would like to do is mm -hmm. cut the band 
don't use my band, but use the music, use session musicians and change the name to Zach Brown and the Chicken Fried. And I thought, my God, you're marketing before music. And it's, and so anyway, I said, well, thank God we didn't do that. Uh, but we used his band, which was uh, a switch for me because I was used to the, to the session players. And it, it took longer. But it was different, and it was worth using his band because they could go out there and recreate exactly what you were hearing when you when you listened to the music. So that one, you know, at a time in my career when I just wasn't expecting that to happen, mm-hmm. it happened. It came to me, and uh, the music still stands and speaks for itself on that foundation record, that very first, very first one. So, you know, they did a great cover of Jolene and, uh, Zach, the song free is amazing. He does a live version of that where he mixes it with into the mystic. Yeah. That's the way we cut it. Oh, did you? Yes. But, but we couldn't get, we couldn't get clearance from the Van Morrison estate. They, they wouldn't give it to us. So there were, there was actually, Three pieces to that was there was a fiddle intro that lasted probably forty five seconds, and then huh. it goes into free, yes sir, and then it breaks into into the mystic. So I had the only copy of that for a while, and I've, and I've he's been doing it in the concert that way, but it finally has popped up in different places. But it was so powerful, I was like, holy crap, Zach! I said, you got it. He goes, well, we can't get permission to use it. So we had to just sit on it for a while. But wow, I didn't know y'all had cut it that way. I thought it was just his live version. That's amazing. No, we recorded it that way. I'll I'll send you a copy. <laughs> I, oh, I would love to hear it. What about uh, when you're sitting behind the board and they start uh, tearing into Sick Him on, sick him on a Chicken? Oh, man. That, that, that song is so special to me because he had this little, in the early days, he had a little Jack Russell dog named Pete. Oh, they're loud. That, that traveled with him. Okay. And Pete's in that song, you know, that's what... Ah, if you go back and listen to the lyrics, but I just thought that song was was hilarious. It was awesome, and 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 it felt good. But they were different. They weren't, you know, they weren't following anybody's agenda. And that's I, I find that the best music happens when that's allowed to become part of the process. That there's there's no strangling and manipulating going on. It's just you you're just there. You. You do your thing. He's just so different. Even for, you know, what I was used to hearing with your traditional work, you know, um, very much grounded in tradition, but it's just, with his uh, nylon strings or the cat, cat gut, gut yep, string guitar. It's gut string guitar. It's just so okay. unique and it was so different at the time, but so necessary that we had a different artist with a different sound. Yeah. And I felt like, and we did talk, we talked about this a little bit because when we tracked the foundation, uh, he also had a Martin steel string mm-hmm. guitar. And I, I remember specifically he and I had a conversation. I said, that gut string is a, is is an identity thing, Zach. I said, look what it's done for Willie Nelson. I said, there's nobody else doing it. And I said, it'll it'll work. And it did. <laughs> well, that's where he benefits so much from having your guidance and, and vision. Uh, uh, he, he's, he's another one like Alan that has this uncanny ability to to have this this gut that just helps him make these decisions that are always right yeah 
and he's an amazing songwriter. He had a great story about the night you came to see him at Third and Lindsley, what you said to him while you were so attracted to talking to him. I won't say it publicly. <laughs> Have you have you ever seen the documentary where he's, where, uh, with the Foo Fighters? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Did I had to apologize to Joe Galani about that. I saw Joe at the, at the ASCAP. I said, Joe, I don't even remember ever saying that. <laughs> and he goes, Don't worry about it. But You'll have to watch the that was uh, documentary. That, yeah, that was that the Dave Grohl thing that he did with that. <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, I want to see the guy that told Joe. And uh, and I'm I'm sitting there watching this at my house when it pops up, and I went. Oh my God! <laughs> is that one of those moments where you're like, "This is going to be a story"? This is one of those moments when you, you know, you're living in the country, you, nobody knows where you're at, and all of a sudden you're you're on every TV in America saying something really bad. <laughs> I'm sure I was like, I wonder how Keith feels about him uh, telling that story. Uh, for a minute, I wanted to choke him. <laughs> well. So after the Keith the album, I did want to ask you, I mean, I apologize, the Zach album, you have done many amazing things and you're continuing to do it with Dreamlined. How do you bring the best out of artists? Because you've, with Terry Clark and um, I think you did Billy Ray yeah. and you, you know, we've, we've talked on some of the high points, but there's a lot of artists in there that are so important throughout the 90s and in, into the aughts. How have you approached bringing out the best of an artist so often with so many people? Well, I, I think that every artist, if you're a record producer that comes that crosses your path, they're all they all are different, but they all have one thing, and that is that thing. Uh, some artists don't need a lot, you know, and then some artists require a little bit more. So. I always, not that I'm always in evaluation mode, but I'm always thinking, what does this artist need from me? What are they, what what hole are they trying to fill that, that I can be? And so I try to step into that role as much as I can because they're not all, you know, not that way. I mean, artists are in different places in, their, in the trajectory, as you call it, of a career of just beginning or had you know had moderate success and then can't get back going again what's it going to take to get to get the engine cranked back up so i just i just try to evaluate what what's in front of me and and take care of the artist uh, and, and I, reflecting back to what we talk about old Nashville, a lot of ways it was such an ironclad iron fist what you were supposed to do and I fought that as an artist, and probably was was part of the reason I wasn't successful because I just could, I couldn't I couldn't do that, you know. So I think it's about just being a good human, and and listening to people. So you you sometimes have to change personalities. I guess you feed off other people's energies. Yeah, I I don't know if I change personalities so much. I mean, I I try to change my perspective. Mm -hmm. Per artist, and uh, I mean, some of it is 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 completely easy for me. But I think, especially when it comes to things that are in the traditional world and things like that, that are just that I grew up with. Other things I have to stretch a little bit and uh, educate myself. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm I'm just I'm amazed at how often I find out that artists are very insecure, and that sometimes producers actually have to say, "Listen, you're great. You're doing good." Yeah. <laughs> So I wonder how often you run into some of that. 
gosh, I have I've run into some artists that are that are experiencing vocal problems and and that is just sheer hell when an artist has to has to go through vocal issues. Uh but I think I can I can I'm always attuned to that on an art, when an artist is having trouble, and I can always get the get the performance out of them by telling them, "You got this, you got this." Let me tell you something: the voice only exists one place in your head. That's wow. where it exists. It doesn't show up anywhere else. So you can do it. And those type of it's like being a good movie director in a lot of ways. You know, try to get the get get the the artist to be comfortable enough to do the art. I'm glad you were kind of mentioning that. Um, for artists and songwriters or maybe aspiring producers that are listening to this, how do you approach creating art and making sure, to, I, don't, I might be making an assumption, but not worrying or predicting how it's going to be received? Well, you know, that kind of flies in the face of the whole Nashville system because you've got people, you've got tons of people that are that are staff writers trying to write for the radio. And and that's art, the difference between art and commerce. And the fact that art and commerce somehow link link arms together is the reason we have this business. But I think it's it's the way that creative people, different different creative people approach their craft. You know, there are people who write songs that don't care if they ever get on the radio. And nine times out of ten, they end up on the radio because they don't care. Mm -hmm. Then you have another whole subset of people that are just, you know, doing the paint-by-numbers thing. And this is what this sounds like a hit. Let's put it out. You know, and it's a different it's a different way of writing. And and I'm fans, a fan of both both of those types of things, because there's been some incredible songs that were written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil that were hacked out of the Brill Building in New York. But they were incredible. You know, you've lost that loving feeling. These are all yeah. these are all things that were written by staff writers at the time. So I, you know, I I, I look at that and go, that's incredible. Well, if they wrote for the right, if they wrote that song for the Righteous Brothers, you sold me. <laughs> and then, you know, then you have. Uh, People bring up Christofferson, who, you know, being being Bobby McGee wasn't written for the radio, but it had power. And when Janis Joplin wrapped herself around it, look what happened. So mm -hmm. it's just the difference in how people choose to. And I think I've I've done both sides. I've done the north and the south of that. And, and uh, as I've gotten older. And I'm not chasing as much as a writer. I, I think it's it's I'm writing more from history and things that have happened and things that that move me. You know. Yes, sir. Well, for people listening, we've celebrated so many of your successes. Um, on the path to creating your own success, you have to deal with ups and downs. And I want to ask you how you dealt. Have you ever dealt with struggles, failures? Things not working out the way you want to, songs or albums not being received the way you want to, and how you just kept pushing through. Yeah, I think I, uh, I don't know if, if it's a great trait to have, but I'm pretty adaptive, uh, and some sometimes economics dictates what you do. I had I had wasted so much time with a frustrating artist career. You know, I I couldn't 
I couldn't make things happen the way I wanted to, so I just was miserable. Uh, and that's that's when the first Randy Travis thing dropped into my life. And I'm, you know, I think I told you I'm I'm out on the road, got a bus, I'm breaking down, I'm producing a couple signs on Randy, and all of a sudden that begins to happen. Mm-hmm. But it was after I had left. I I had bailed on being Randy's producer with Kyle, and I told myself, "You're supposed to be a record, supposed to be a record producer. You can't do this again. You can't walk away from." So I promised myself the next artist that I that I ran into, that I met, that I that I believed in, I was going to I was going to let this artistry career go and become a record producer. Well, that guy was Alan, and and if that wasn't the clearest indicator of this is what you're supposed to do pay attention you know and that's but there was a tremendous amount of frustration that led up to that of just not being able to you know the the road was killing me it was financially bankrupting me and i and it just was it was not enjoyable so well it sounds like from your time to struggle ended up a lot of beauty and a lot of success i i look at these talent shows nowadays that have you know, been pretty dominant in recent years and nothing against a lot of the talent show winners or participants. Uh, they're all looking for their way in, but I do think that there is an, an aspect to it um, where you're not getting the hard knocks. You're not finding your voice and you're not it, learning the struggle that people like that, Alan that, and them did when it took them 10 years to get that's a deal. A big, that's a big piece of, of, of coming into your own. Yes, sir. <clears throat> that's a big piece of it. And we, and we kind of, gotten rid of that. I mean, I think it's wonderful that we have the technology that kids can make records in their bedroom if they want to. That's that's great. But there's something to be said for working in a studio with the best musicians in the world. Mm-hmm. And and that experience, you know, is so important and so so valid in the growth of an artist and what the, what they're able to do. But that's it's just the change in times. Yeah. You have to embrace the no's because they make you stronger and they might make you uh, ready to uh, weather all the storms that come once you find if you get what you're wanting. I think well, I, I think for me, during, during that time when I was still struggling and, and I had left the Randy situation, I had, I had parked my bus up at this little market right up from my house and I was walking back to the house and I stopped by the mailbox and I opened it up. And there was this big envelope in there from Warner's Records. I went, well, I what the, so I opened up the, the envelope, and there's there's a check in there for $13,000. I've just come off the road where I had to replace an alternator that cost me 8000 So I, I looked at that, and I went, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I'm glad. I, I think that's another uh, important aspect is, you know, to have a dream, but be able to adapt and know that you can go in different avenues within that dream of music. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, my the artistry career never got off the ground. But after, with a lot of success with these other things that I did, I had people offer me opportunities to make records again, which kind of just floated out, flowed out of that whole thing of because I was hanging around people that were super successful. You mentioned technology and music, so if we can, let's do a little dive into that. Mm. Um, we have AI creating, recreating all these different duets and songs. Mm-hmm. We have ChatGPT helping people write lyrics. Where do you where do you come down on this whole uh, technology intermingling with music debate? Well, 
you know, you're not going to get rid of it. Right. Uh, I always say, don't look back. We ain't going that way. Uh, so I think anybody with integrity, and I think there are some some people in the music business with integrity that are talented, uh, are smart enough to use those as tools and not as definitive templates, you know. Uh, I've always used a rhyming dictionary. You know, I get stuck on a rhyme. I'm on a, I've always used the book of idioms. If I'm, if I'm dry on a hook, hoping that I'm trying to come across, you know. So it's, it's always been there, just not, not to this degree. Mm-hmm. But once we started making records in computers, and that's what we do now, the the landscape is shifts and accommodates that you know the man I, I remember working on an album before before Pro Tools ever happened going man one of these days wouldn't it be so nice if they had this little this computer that you could sing into and you could just fix the you could fix that vocal where it was and all of a sudden you Auto-tune. know ten years later I'm sitting in a studio fixing fixing a vocal going man this is Thank God I don't have to bring that, bring the artist back in here and wear them out, making them sing it five thousand times. I'll just sing it one time and I'll fix it. So, you know, and I've been guilty of that. Uh, I had one of the first uh, tuning rigs in town. My, uh, John Kelton, my engineer partner, we bought one of the first Pro Tools rigs. Then we had Antares in that rig, so wow. we, you know, we used it. What I did figure out and learn is that if you go to a plastic surgeon, you really don't want people to know that you've been. Mm-hmm. Well said. So if you're using auto-tuned, you don't want your listener to pick it off that it's auto-tuned, you know. But T-Pain changed all that. So. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> T-Pain actually had a – he actually <laughs> – well, in my opinion, he had a way to make it creative – Oh, yeah. It, it was used as, as an instrument almost within itself. And I, I guess what I would like to say about him is, you know, he was open about it. Yeah. It wasn't something. No. The, the rest of us in Nashville were hiding it going, well, I don't want to tell anybody we're doing this. It wasn't like that young uh, Jessica Simpson sister who was on SNL Boy. and she had to run off. What an embarrassing moment. Oh, I remember that. Um, <laughs> let me ask you from a philosophical standpoint, what is a recording studio to you? Is that is that um, something of a holy place for you? It's the temple. Yes. And uh, growing up as a kid, I had an uncle who had a recording studio in Texas. And that's where I first, when I, that was when I was like eight or nine years old. I started going to the studio and spending, my parents would visit. It was my dad's uh, brother-in-law. But I got this, I was exhilarated when I was in that, in that workspace, it wasn't even a workspace. It was, it was the Magic Kingdom. When I was in there, and and he, and he had all the he had the drums and he had the piano and all these instruments around. And while my parents are in there having coffee and talking to, he's talking to my, his sister. I'm in, I'm playing the drums or I'm playing that Hammond, or I'm at the piano, and I just. I remember going. I could spend the rest of my life in one of these places like this. And that that feeling was ignited again when I walked into Columbia Studio A for the first time when I moved here. And I walked into that room, and there that feeling was again. I went, 
I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is where I belong. That's almost a feeling of when you see a great golfer on the greens, walking the green, you see a pitcher working the mound, working the dirt. I guess that's like you at the board. Yeah, or just watching the musicians work, you know, and, and being so taken aback by that whole process. Do you ever have that pinch yourself music, I mean, moment that this is what I get to do for a lot, for my career? Yeah, I think it's it's all it all surrounds the song now. Uh incredible songs do that to me, you know. And then if you get if you get fortunate enough to track that song, then it's then it's well, we're getting near the end. Um, I just have a few more questions, if you don't mind. Yeah. We talked about this at the beginning, but now that we've kind of gotten run through some of the career, what is your what was your drive to make it and not just make it, but sustain it over a long, remarkable career that's still going and we still have some exciting artists coming from you? What? Say the question again. What was my drive to do? So you didn't just have a drive to make it. You've proven a drive to sustain it over a long, successful, and remarkable career. And we always like to get some insight from people like you as to how other people can understand how to continually build on a career. I think, I think, uh, (laughs) I think it's. Dedication is is important, uh, and that sounds a little trite, but I think the all I have to to measure this by is 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 my career and how th- what things worked for me. It was about being a writer. It was about getting those first cuts. That's all that mattered to me when I got to town. Everything else grew out of that. Uh, I think it's important, and I do believe this with all my heart, it's important to focus on one specific thing. Mm -hmm. If you're focused on four or five different things or even two or three different things, you can't dedicate yourself 100% to the one thing that's going to change your life. And for me, that was writing and the artist, I wasn't trying to be an artist. I kept getting record deals. I, I, I kept they would somebody would listen to my songs and go, "What's he doing? Is he does he?" And I'd get a call, and I ended up in making doing record deals. And I was the reluctant artist. I got pushed into it. Hence, that's why it never really took off because it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So I think figure that out if if it's. If it's about being in this business and being the creator, then you gotta you gotta concentrate on being a great songwriter. You gotta learn how to do that. And if you do that, it'll take care of everything else. Everything else will come into your life because of that and show up. If you were president of the United States and you had or president of country music and you had to give a current I don't know about the United States. <laughs> That's a good, good but if I were, let me tell you <laughs> That's a long conversation. That's a whole other podcast. If you were given, uh, well, we should have it. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I'll have to leave the country. <laughs> if, if you were president of country music and you had to give a, cur- a current state of the genre speech, what would be some of the high points or negative points? Well, I think 
the high points are obviously there's there's a lot of streams going on. A lot of people are successfully doing the new paradigm. Uh, the downside is the artists that preceded that paradigm are struggling. Struggling to figure out how to get heard still, how to how to service their fan base, how to do all those things. And some guys are, you know, are lucky enough to, to find people that can help them do that. But the transition has been absolutely brutal. I mean, there is writers that are gone from the town that were here that could make a living off of two or three album cuts. Mm-hmm. And that disappeared. And that 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 hurt me to see that happen to so many people that, that were my friends that were part of the fabric of the town. They, they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't pay their bills anymore. So, you know, you run into them at Home Depot doing whatever they can to, to try to survive. That's heartbreaking to me because the business stopped sustaining uh, that bunch of people. And, and the beauty of what they were doing is they would provide these things that were end up on albums. And every once in a while we'll get a single out of that, you know. So it made it it made it possible. But the business does not allow for that anymore. And it's it's down to a chosen few. Do you think the government will ever come around and start to look out for songwriters with some of their legislation? Or is it I don't know. I, as long as you know, we have no defenses for the things that have seemed to have happened to us as, as creators. And I say us, I mean writers. You know, I mean, Spotify is great, but it's not great. It's, you know, and, and I think it's the perception of people in, from that world look at us and go, you shouldn't complain. Mm-hmm. Well, try having having your wedding without our music, you know. Try doing anything. Try going to a restaurant without our music. It's like the importance of what we do is disregarded. Otherwise, it wouldn't be sold for a pittance. They almost act like um, creators should just look at their music like a billboard on the side of the road. It's free. The customer can see it free, and then they can decide if they want to go to the concert. And it's it's very unfair. the, The other piece that's very concerning to me is that the younger generation that is coming up and has, has has no record or reference point of what the industry was. So they're happy with anything. This bunch goes, wait a minute. I bought my first house off of my first hit record. That's what this was worth. It's not worth that anymore. And the younger generation is, you know... Well, sorry, I just made five thousand dollars because there's no way to make it make sense. So they've kind of been conditioned hmm. to be happy with the crumbs. Yeah, that's. Wow. I think that's that's where that's where our business is headed. Wow, you know, that's unfortunate. <clears throat> and I hope I hope it doesn't. You know, like you said, there's a guy that's working at Home Depot that should be focused on songwriting, yeah. and and I know that people don't look at it this way, but I hope that there isn't a standard that I'm never going to hear because that guy didn't get enough time to develop in this city or have enough income because art, there's just something about the arts that's so important to our society. And Well, I think, too, there's there's a tremendous amount of pressure on, on a lot of the younger uh, writers that are, that are staff writers, you know, to 
to provide, to get mm-hmm. hits. And I mean, it is, it's economics. Yes. It is, but I, I really try to give, give my riders as much time as they need to get there. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm seeing that happen, but you, you can't rush it and you, you have to have the resources to maintain it to a certain level. Well, a couple of personal questions to end. What is left for everything you've done in this world? Is there anything left on the bucket list, achievement-wise or contributions to the genre? What's on the bucket list for Keith Stegall? Oh, man. You know, Someone you want to write with? Well, I took care of that last week. I gave a short list of people I wanted to write with uh, uh, to Jenny Johnson, who works for me. Mm-hmm. She sent the sent the <laughs> sent the request out, which is uh, one particular guy who responded was Alan Shamblin, who I'm just a huge fan of his writing. So I think building one more company, uh, getting Dreamline to the place that I think it could get, and figuring out the pieces that are necessary to have a hit record. Okay. So that's a challenge. Uh, it takes money. But if if you crack the nut, it works. What about a desert island playlist for Keith Stegall? What's going to be on the playlist? Randy Newman, good old boys. Okay. Willis Allen Ramsey. I don't know if you're familiar with I'm these not, people. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not familiar with. Am I showing my young age here? Uh, well, no. You're giving me music that now I'm going to be turned on to. So I well, get if to, you haven't heard "Good Old Boys," you need. To I've hear. heard "Good Old Boys." Yeah, that's yeah. that album. But is I don't know the second artist. Willis Allen Ramsey. Okay. Uh, he was actually signed to Leon Russell's record label okay. in the seventies. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to think. And a, actually, a record that I that I did on a guy named Neil Cody called "Chance and Circumstance." Wow! So, and then of course, a lot about living. <laughs> that's the, that's that's the Alan Jackson record. You're have, just going to so. take the entire album. <laughs> yeah. That's from the Chattahoochee album, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I was hiking last week in Helen, Georgia, and that's where the Chattahoochee National Forest is. So, of course, I had to take a picture by one of the signs and send it to Jim. <laughs> If I had Alan's number, I'd text him also. (laughs) Why the Three Stooges? They were my babysitters. Really? Well, when I was, my parents were working when I would get in from school, get off the bus from uh, the first grade. And my mom would be home by five, and the Stooges came on at four, and I got home at 3.30. So my mom would tell me, just sit and watch TV, sit and watch the Three Stooges till I get home. I'll be home at five. So every day, <laughs> the Three Stooges were like my babysitter. I would I would sit there and watch, you know, watch the Stooges till my mom got home. I love it when I learn about other people and like what their <laughs> likes and dislikes are. Because yesterday I end up YouTube now is uh, giving me suggestions on Three Stooges, oh. and I'm learning the tragic story of Curly. Yeah, Jerome. Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of interesting when you start to learn some of those stories. But I was just wondering, I saw a picture of you with two albums behind you and a picture of the Three <laughs> Stooges. So I assumed you're still a big fan. Yeah, I actually have scripts with margin notes, uh, which is pretty crazy. That's a collector's item. Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a pretty extensive collect- wow. collector's item. Did you win them in a bid? 
Did you, was that a bid? No, just bought them at different times. Uh, huh. And I was trying to think. Uh, anyway, I've, I've got I've, I've, the first Stooges stuff I had were, were actually eight millimeter film, you know, and then that was probably 50 years ago when I wow. first started, you know, getting those. But uh, yeah, then I, then I did, of course, did like you did. I did research the, the Horowitz family. And, yeah. And then Larry Feinberg, you know, who, his whole story, and then got him Ted Healy. He was part of the part of the early incarnation of the Stooges. But yeah, so I'm I'm a huge, huge well, Stooges in, fan. It was interesting to see that uh, it came from vaudeville, which I think that's what yep. Grand Ole Opry was inspired by. Yeah, in the early days. Yep. Well, I'm glad that we've got a chance to get some uh, <laughs> little more personal notes with you about things you're into, uh, Ben. Before we get out of here. I would like to let Keith talk one more time about Dreamlined. Um, so this is your website, correct? For Dreamline? And I think so. We'll pull these artists up on the live feed. But go, no, go down to artist so we can make sure we're giving these people their yeah, that's credit. That, that's the Hay Goods, yeah. And there's Michaela. Is that William Michael coming mm-hmm. up? Yeah. He did the song, I Met a Girl, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good song. And there's Papa and Daughter. Yeah. There's Michael White. Incredible writer. There's Michaela. So we got a small roster, but I, at one point I had eight writers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I'll never do that again. And then at the end of the other, at the very end of that computer, there's KeithStagog.com. So if anybody wants to go and check out Keith's work. Um, you and know, the many looks of me, there's that Debbie Lovato, Debbie yeah, that's, Lovato picture. That's the album you did in Muscle Shoals, correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. Terrific. That's and there great. you are with Zach Brown and, uh, Alan. Yeah. That was over that duet. We As did. she's walking away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, my friend, this has been an amazing moment for me in my life. Oh. How, however you felt sitting across from George Jones, <laughs> how I feel sitting across from you. Thank you. Um, you making the time to come by here means the world to me. I really appreciate everything you've Thank ever you. done in your career. And um, I, I look forward to seeing you again in the future. But that's another episode of Country Drive, and we appreciate you tuning in. Bye, y'all. Bye.